Um, a good coach uh, often makes or breaks a team. Uh, the players in the, the organization are definitely key factors in the overall success, and, and they're probably bigger pieces when it comes down to it, but often the coach is sort of like the X factor, and, and it's usually that piece of the puzzle that puts that, that team over the edge. A good coach needs to know when to push his team, um, when they need to be called to the floor and let known what's going, what's really going on and what's going to take to turn things around. Uh, Bobby Knight was a coach of the Indiana Hoosiers men's basketball team for many years. At one point, he was the winningest coach in college basketball history. And, um, and, and he accepted nothing except full effort at every moment. He was a pusher. And he was a pusher so much that it even led to physical altercations with peaceful on with his players on his team. Now he was a successful coach and he won a lot of games, but all of that definitely came at a cost because that's always who he was. A good coach knows when his team needs to be encouraged when they are hurting. Uh, Vince Lombardi, the other guy in our, in our picture here, is the famed uh, head coach of the Green Bay Packers, and it was said that he had an excellent sense of when to do what for his team. There was a moment where a biographer recorded an incident when Lombardi decided to encourage his team at a really surprising time. Uh, the Packers had just lost a game in an embarrassing fashion, serves them right no, okay. We beat him this year. It's okay. Uh, I mean, two lost fumbles, a block punt resulting in a safety, all contributed to their loss. And, and the team, I mean, they expected Lombardi to just lay into him and take it out on them on, in the plane. And instead, the old coach, when he got on the plane, invited them to, to drink a Frosty or, or two and, and spoke to them cheerfully that although this might be a low point, there were going to be brighter days ahead. Uh, later that night, uh, after they landed, he took them and their families, invited them over to the local Elks Lodge and took them out to a turkey dinner. Lombardi was uh, a pretty gruff guy. And was unrelenting. He did care about winning. But he also knew when it was important to show another side of who he was. He knew that his men uh, at times did need pushing, but they also need encouragement too. Peter, who has been the writer of the letter that we've been looking at this fall, uh, is like a good coach. And he has known through his letter that, that his team, all of us and the people he was speaking to, they needed both pushes, right? They needed truth at moments and they needed to be put to the floor, but they also needed grace and they needed encouragement, you know, that we, we, we've entitled this series as the letter to the, uh, an encouragement to the scattered. And Peter knows that, that those to whom are reading this will need cheering on if they are going to be able to battle with the world that they were living in week to week, day to day, month to month, and year to year. Does that sound something like we might need to? I think so. See, he, they will need encouraged to get on with the difficult work of, of what does it mean to have gracious living in a challenging world. 
And he's going to do this by reminding them specifically of the calling that they have received as followers of Jesus Christ. And he knows that their ability to be able to live graciously in that rests in a proper understanding of the calling that we have received. So I'd love for us to look at our text here this morning. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 8 through 22, and we'll have it up on the screen for your convenience. So reading in Jesus' name, it says this, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear the threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But to do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than, doing for, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people ate in all were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. If we don't know what we've been called to, it's easy for us to get off track. It's, it's really easy for us if we, if we don't remember and what we know what we've been called to. It's easy for us to lose focus and it's really easy for us to not be gracious towards other people in the midst of it. Peter is giving instructions in our text that will both push us but also encourage us. Now as he gives instruction, he understands that it's gonna be falling flat and, and difficult to abide by if we don't understand what our fundamental calling is. Knowing what we are called to gives us direction and an understanding of our purpose. And so Peter desires to communicate this to the church. And so our calling, what he says in, in simplicity, is to be a blessing. Now if we go into our text in, in verse 8 and 9, it says, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you, might, you may inherit a blessing. As I have been uh, looking at this text over these last few weeks, um, there's one piece of this that's sort of been shocking to me. 
And it's the fact that we are not called to bless God, which you would think right away, but instead to bless those who persecute us. We are called to bless those who bruise us. We are called to bless the ungodly ruler, the unjust employer, and the hard-to-love spouse. He wants us to bless those who are in authority over us, regardless of their wickedness, or maybe even in spite of their wickedness. See, what Peter is simply saying is a Christian community is a community that blesses. Now, as I hear that and I, I come before that truth, and, and I got to tell you, there's some truths I have an easy time taking, taking in from Scripture, and there's some I'm just like, I got to kind of grit my teeth and, and bear it. And that's the, the important thing about being under Scripture. Because I, I think the natural question that comes up for us is this. How do we bless those who bruise us? How do we not repay evil with evil and seek vengeance? You see, the reason I think this is the question is because our natural inclination is to bruise those who bruise us. I mean, parents, I think you've seen this a time or two in your life. When you walk in the room because you hear some, like it sounds like there's a, a World War III happening in another room that you're in, you walk in and you're like, what is going on here? And you see your children in an all-out brawl and you have a moment to just get them away from each other for a moment and you're like, what happened here? And the answer is, he poked me. And you're like, he poked me? And you're like, yeah, he poked me. And then, and then, you, and then you listen to look at the other one and he goes, yeah, well, when he poked me, I pinched him. And then the other one says, well, yeah, when he pinched me, I punched him. And then, well, he punched me, so I bit him. And then all of a sudden, we're in an all-out brawl, right? Right, we go from a poke to a pinch to a punch to a bite to a brawl. Sound about right, everybody? I think so. We're born retaliators. Our fallen nature has made us selfish and desire to pay back evil with evil. Right? I mean, we see this in the world. If you mess with the bull, you get the horns. But our calling is that we're called to bless. And the only way for us to answer any wrongdoing that has happened against us without any similar wrongdoing, we're going to need a change at the core of who we are. Because being a blessing is not just words. No, I've heard this phrase more popularized in the South than here, but I still have heard it here. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, bless your heart, okay? Now, I have learned, apparently, that it always doesn't mean what those words mean. Sometimes those words mean other things. Now, a good Southerner, if you were, if you were one of those, which clearly I am not, okay, um, I do like my grits, but that's pretty much about it, right? I mean, a good Southerner knows the, has the unique ability to determine and to diagnose what kind of bless your heart that person actually means, right? Because it can mean something sincere, um, but it often is meant as another way of kind of putting someone down nicely or or kind of passive-aggressively. It's sort of like, like, bless her heart, she's just having a, she's just having a terrible luck at thinking. It's like, wait, 
I'm pretty sure I was just insulted there. I mean, yikes. I mean, to bless is not just simply words, right? I mean, I can say the right things, but it doesn't mean that I believe it in my heart. I've just learned how to play the game. To bless is not just about words, but it also seems a little bit more than just actions as well. See, I can bless someone by doing something for them even if I don't have the right motivation. But that would not be aligned with what God is calling us to do. I do things all the time, confession moment. I do things all the time because of obligation. Not because my heart's in the right place, but because I feel like I'm supposed to. See, to bless in in the way that God is calling us is not just words, it's not just actions, it's something more than that. See, to bless here means to bless someone with your words and your actions with a heart behind them. So blessing then calls for a change in your heart. It is wanting good to come upon the other person. It's a disposition of wanting their well-being to be good. Now, I can change my words and I can change even my accent, except I know when I slip into Brooklynese because I get giggles and looks from you guys. It's a little harder to diagnose right now but, um, because of our masks, but I know when I slip into it. But I can change my words, I can change my accent, I can change my behavior, I can change my clothes, but I can't change my heart. I can't. And I've tried. I can't change my heart. So we have to realize that this calling that we're being given cannot be done by you or by me. It has to be something that's done by God and us. And if we look at the bigger picture, it's important for us to have people in our lives that it's easy for us to bless and then it's not so easy for us to bless. Because I think that teaches us something about God. It's about God's way of working in, in, in us. So as I said, it's good for a person to have those who love them and are easy to love. And, 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 and I, the reason why I think that is, is it would be hard to understand God's grace and his love for, that he has for us if we don't experience at least a sliver uh, of this in our actual lives, right? I mean, if you've talked to people that don't know, know God, most of the time, the reason that they might be struggling with understanding God's love is because they actually haven't experienced love in their own personal life. And how could you understand God's love if you haven't felt that in your own personal life? And so we see that it's good for us to have uh, uh, people in our lives or a person um, to those that, that, that love us and we love them. But it's also good for followers of Jesus to have people who are hard to love or even our our enemies. When we have people pouring evil towards us, maybe even reviling us, it gives us a unique opportunity. And it gives us a unique opportunity opportunity to be imitators of God as his beloved children. It's easy for us to love those who love you back, but it's a whole other thing to love those who don't. I don't know if there's a more opportune week for this text to be upon us in America. 
We are in a divisive time in our country where battle lines have been drawn, and it's easy for us to look at the other side and and look to get payback, retribution, and vengeance. It's easy for us to look at the other side of the political aisle and just see disgust and disdain in our heart. Peter does a pretty remarkable job here in our text, if we can look back at that for a minute, because I think it speaks into our situation now. Okay, Peter... Uh, in our text, quotes from Psalm 34, which we uh, read a part of that as our call to worship. And uh, Psalm 34 uh, reminds us of actually an, an, an another story in, in the Old Testament. Um, in Psalm 34, uh, well, in, sorry, in, verse, uh, in verses 10 and 12 of our First Peter text, it says this, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he's quoting from Psalm 34 there. I, I, there was two other verses on there that aren't on the slide. But um, this psalm was written by David and it speaks to a series of certain moments in David's life. Um, this refers back to a time in David's life recorded in 1 Samuel 21. Uh, David was running from his life from King Saul. Um, Saul uh, was king and was, uh, knew that David was the heir apparent and was trying to kill him so he could maintain and stay in power. Uh, he had pinned David to the wall. He had uh, uh, to try to spear him three times, sent assassins after him, and David is on the run. And David was so desperate in the midst of his fleeing that he ends up fleeing to Gath, which is one of the five main cities of the Philistines. And uh, in another part of scripture, we learn that uh, Gath was Goliath's hometown. And Goliath was the giant that David um, had killed years earlier. And so, of course, people in the city, since he had, had overtaken their, fear, their fiercest warrior, uh, were not going to take a liking to him. And so David's now in the middle of the city, and to make matters worse, he actually has Goliath's sword with him, which just looks like he's just trying to rub it in. And he's in front of King Akish and wondering what is going to happen next. This is David's immediate circumstance that we're reading about here, but it was also in that overall season that I mentioned where he's fleeing from Saul who wanted to kill him, who was running and hiding in caves, even though earlier the prophet Samuel had anointed him as the true king. So this is the scenario in which we're taking place. And what we see here is that that God delivers him from from that immediate moment in Gath, and then we know later on he also delivers him from from even Saul. And he writes this psalm as he was set free from Gath. In the overall picture of David's life at this time, he was not ruler, and instead an unjust ruler was on the throne pursuing him and persecuting him. David, who was God's elect, was forced to suffer on this earth as an exile. Yet the psalm we read earlier in our service, Psalm 34, if you actually read the beginning of that psalm, it says this, as David used these words as he, as he penned that song, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. 
See, David submitted himself to God's timing and continued to bless God by even blessing his enemy Saul in the most difficult times and under the most unfair circumstances. I think Peter, the writer here, picks this story in history to highlight what it means to submit, what it means to suffer, and ultimately what it means to bless. There were two times in David's life in particular that David could have paid, repaid evil with evil. He had Saul in his crosshairs, and he could have taken Saul's life and, and, and moved into being king. He could have done what many of other people would have called justice or vengeance. But instead, he chose to repay with grace. The pointing out of this story would have been, I think, such an encouragement to an audience that Peter was writing to who were dealing with the reality of being dispersed, not having a country to call home, feeling like an alien in a foreign land, and dealing with rulers who they did not respect and felt were unjust. That in David's obedience to the call that he had been given, Peter has found one who's given even a foreshadowing of Christ and his sufferings. See, in the midst of our call to bless and in our instruction to love our enemies, we see that it's not only a good thing because it provides an opportunity to imitate God, but it also serves as a constant reminder of how deeply and madly you are in love with yourself and how deeply and madly God is in love with you. That we when, when, when we have those who stand against us in our lives, it reminds us of, of us as the ones who have stand in defiance against God's word, that we fall short of the measuring stick of, of God's law in our lives, which turns us to a place of desperation, and it brings us in front of looking for a remedy for our situation that we cannot provide for ourselves. It brings us to the foot of the cross and an understanding of Christ's suffering on our behalf. It reminds us of how much Christ loved us even in the midst of our sin. That verse 18 in our text reminds us of this so well when it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That he was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. And it's even further emphasized at the end of our text here this morning when when Peter writes about Noah how his family was saved, brought safely through water. And then we're hit in verse 21 where we get this wonderful proclamation. Baptism, which corresponds to this, right? Corresponds to Noah and his family being brought safely through water. Now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism saves you. What a promise. What a proclamation. It is how God creates faith and bestows that upon those that are undeserving. See that? This is why this is hope and encouragement for the beleaguered. Because it helps us be reminded of the fact that it's not about us going to God, but it's about God coming to us. And us being able to trust in him even in the most difficult and uncertain times. I'm thankful for that message here this morning that we can live in and put our anchor in, aren't you? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this message here this morning. We're thankful, um, Lord, that you bring hope to the beleaguered.
Lord, that you have created a remedy for our situation that we find ourselves in when we recognize that we can't do this life perfectly without, without you. Lord, that we need your clothing of your righteousness in our lives. Father, as we just hear these words today and, and we, we, we don't always know what the answers are, we don't always know what tomorrow will look like, but let tomorrow worry about itself and, and Lord, that you have today and you have tomorrow and you have forever. And we can trust in you and that you make our path straight. We can trust in, our, in all of our ways and acknowledge you. We're thankful that that is true, Lord, for us here today and will be true for us here tomorrow. We pray this in your name, amen.